So John chapter 1, um, as we begin our Advent season, I invite you to have it open in your phone or your Bible, even in the nurse book, to um, take notes as we dive into, because this is an extremely important three verses. Um, one of the uh, parts of my vocation um, is I get to uh, be with people at some of their, their most exciting moments, which is at weddings and celebrations. But it also means I get to be with people in some of the saddest moments, um, specifically funerals. So having um, done many funerals, um, it's always interesting to me to hear what people say about the person who has passed at their funeral, specifically those who are closest to that person. We were um, at a, a family funeral a couple years ago, and it was really interesting because being a family, you know kind of the internal dynamics of how the family was working. And let's just say that the person that passed did not have the greatest relationship with their family. The boys do, did not look up to their dad. It was one of those like um, bittersweet moments. But then you hear people get up and almost like strangers, people that worked with them once or twice at a distance and really in the, their work world. And they had nothing but great things to say about the person. So you have the family who's closest to them not wanting to say the nicest things. And then you have the people that only know them on the periphery of their life and they only have the best things to say. And it was a big gut check for me. Because I, wanted, I was asking the question, what would the people closest to me, what would they say at my funeral? After I die, or after you die, what are those that are closest to you, that walk with you, that know you, that see you day in and day out? What are the things that they say about you once you were gone? These words that we read today are from somebody who knew Jesus closer than most people did. John was on Jesus' like, inner circle. He was one that saw him at some of the key, most significant moments of all of his ministry. And so here we see what John has to say about Jesus. But I'm actually going to, as we begin this series on John in Advent, but then we're really going to kick it off in January. Um, Advent's going to be on the prologue, just for those of you that like to take notes and want to read a bunch. This is what John says at the end of his gospel account. Okay, He says this, John chapter 20 and verse 31. He says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you, you may have life in his name. So close friend of Jesus was with him day in and day out, heard him teach, watched his life. This person looked at Jesus and says, that is the Messiah. He was the son of God. And I just wrote, and what we're about to journey through over the next couple months 
in the Gospel of John is so that you and I would not only initially believe in Jesus, but more deeply come to understand who he is, what he has done for us. So today, my desire in this is that we would start to rightly think about the nature of God, that we would rightly worship him in his triune way, and then we would have life through him. So John chapter 1, the beginning, and he says it right in the verse 3 verse, uh, words, in the beginning. It's interesting to note when you look at all the other gospel accounts, how do they start? Mark starts at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in, with the same three words, in the beginning, but of the ministry of Jesus. Matthew starts in the beginning um, of a, with a genealogy. I mean, as Western thinkers, we, we open up the Bible like, let's read Matthew. And it's the, one of the most boring parts of like you cannot rightly pronunciate. It's like, why am I going to start there? Why would, you, why would you do that, Matthew? Right? So he starts there to show him that Jesus is actually the new Davidic king. So he's David there, but he starts in his ministry. Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. But John being the last gospel account written, you, he probably had access to the other writings, okay? And you, I can just imagine him as he's writing this, being like, oh, they want to go back to Adam? Watch this. Let me one-up you a bit. And he one-ups them by saying what? In the beginning was the word. So we're going to ask a question in a few minutes. What is the word? What does that mean? We're also going to see, and the word was with God. What is God? What does that mean? That's a term thrown around a lot in our society. But what does it actually mean for John in this account? In the Bible, um, a lot of times as we look through this, it's what one author calls um, the most hyperlinked or the first hyperlinked book in human history. So if you ever go on a Wikipedia page and you're, you're reading through it and all of a sudden you see like blue letters and underlined and you bring your mouse, uh, you hover over it, it highlights the word, you click it and it brings you to another page, right? It's hyperlinked. The Bible is hyperlinked. I want to show you a video, uh, excuse me, a, a picture of this. The, um, there are over 63,000 cross-references in the Bible. So... What John's doing, he's saying, hey, in the beginning, I want you to think hyperlink Genesis 1-1. Because where else have we seen in the beginning? Hyperlink, ding, bring your mind to Genesis 1-1. This is a picture of the 60, over 63,000 hyperlinks or cross-references found in the Bible. Along the bottom, you see the little jagged part of it. Those are each chapter of the Bible. That long one right down the middle... That's Psalm 119, the longest chapter in all the Bible. You see the white on the left and about two-thirds of the way through the right. That is the beginning of the Old Testament and New Testament. So you look over a few different shades of gray after that white, and you see that first section, and you, if we were to zoom in on that specific chapter, there would be dozens of hyperlinks in this chapter alone. When John says, in the beginning, he's wanting to bring your mind to something else. 
If we don't see it, it's not blue with a, an underline that we could just touch and bring us there. But John is saying, no, this should remind you of something else. And it should remind you of Genesis 1.1. What does Genesis 1.1 say? In the beginning was what? God. Forget in the beginning of a ministry. Forget the, the genealogy. Jesus is coming, excuse me, John is coming in here. And at the beginning of his gospel account, he's saying, you know, like that Genesis 1-1, in the beginning when God created? Well, in the beginning was the Word. And he, the Word was with God. But the Word was God, too. If you're confused, welcome to Christian theology of what we call the Trinity. So what does he mean by the word? Before we start focusing on God, what does he mean by the word? This is the Greek word logos or logos, if depending on who has taught you or taught you, excuse me. Um, really, really complex uh, conversation. Some people think that this word, John is uh, ripping on the Greek philosophies of the day. For them, logos was reason. So you could read it as, in the beginning was reason. And the reason was with God. That's how some people still claim it to be today. That this is not about Jesus. This is not about God incarnate. This is about our mental faculties to be able to understand all that's going on around us. And so forget that historical Jesus character. We now have a universal Christ, quote unquote, that helps us think rightly. We, this was advocated in the last few weeks by a man, an atheist by the name of James Lindsay, who has been platformed by a, a various different Christian people. And, he's, and he was arguing with people about this. He's like, no, reason is what the word was. But the problem is he completely missed Christian theology. Because we don't stop at this and look at, oh, the word was reason. The word was understanding. Um, the word is, uh, in the beginning, how did God, God create? Spoke. There's, word, there's 10 active ways in which God spoke in the beginning of Genesis 1, where God, by speaking, God creates. What this is saying is that Jesus, by being the word, is being the active agent in creation. It is by him and through him and for him, it says elsewhere in the scriptures. And so when we think of the word, we're not thinking of Greek reason. We're thinking of Jesus himself being the one that was at creation, allowing and through him things were to be created. He was not a created one. Let me say that again. Jesus was not created. And this is where we get to the idea of what it means to be God. Because in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God and was with God. So we're starting to see in the very first three chapters of this beautifully written, complex, unbelievable book. We're starting to see how he's going to clarify the nature of God. Because 
there is a distinctness between the word and the creator. But there is a unity amongst the word and the creator. The word is God, but the word was with him. You go to John chapter 17, and John chapter 1, just so you know, is kind of like the table of contents to the rest of the book. You look at, you see John chapter 1, and you're like, oh, that's going to show up a thousand times in the rest of the book. John chapter 17, it also brings into the, the, the Holy Spirit, you have this another, another one that's brought into this relationship of a father and a son and a sp- Holy Spirit that he says are one. And yet, there's a father and a son and a spirit. This is the Christian theology of the Trinity. That the word is the same as the creator, yet distinct from the creator. And so this, uh, I'm, I'm hanging out here theology for a while. Because this is, I would say, one, one of the utmost, most important things when it comes to what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to rightly understand who he is. And to be a Christian is to have a right understanding as much as we possibly can of the nature of God as three in one. So this is something that was fought over a lot. We don't think about this very often, but historically, in the early church, in the first few hundred years, this was a massively fought about and argued over thing. In the year 325, there's a person by the name of Arius. He had a teaching which we now call Arianism. And it was making waves in the church. The basics of it was, he said that there was a point when, God, when the word was not. That's what he said. So he was arguing that um, Jesus was the first creation. Now, he still is powerful. He still has all authority in heaven and on earth, he would say, but that he was the first one that was created. And so there is this massive, massive fight over this. And what happened was what we know as the Nicene Creed. Have you ever heard that term before, the Nicene Creed? The Nicene Creed, the purpose of writing it was to fight Arianism. It was for them, for the Christians to understand what is the nature of God. I'm going to show it on the screen. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm um, Actually, yeah, let's go ahead and read all of it because it's that important. It's the creed. It's way more important than what I have to say. So this is what the, um, the Nicene Creed says. It says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And in the one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, listen to this, not made, of the same essence as the Father. It's really important. The same will, the same desire, the same being the Father and the Son are one. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. He became, oh, you skipped ahead, hold on. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. 
Augustine uses the language, he was divine, but he added to his divinity humanity. Okay? He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, suffered and buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end and we believe in the Holy Spirit. The Lord, the giver of life, he proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen. That has been recited by billions of people across history and across the world. When we come to join them and look at this passage and we say that God um, came and dwelt among us, that God took on flesh, that in the beginning Jesus is of the same essence as the Father and of the Spirit. We are making a radical claim in our society. Because Jesus, I would go venture to say that he is the most important historical figure to ever live. More has been done about him, with him, for him, all that. And what we believe about him is not inconsequential. To think that he is created in line with the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons is not in line with Christian theology. It's not a right understanding of who God is. It's not what the scriptures teach. And I, we can nerd out on the Greek of this passage, which people have done a lot over. We don't need to. But the idea of it is, what do you think about who Jesus is? Who is he? Is he just some guy that's come and taught? Or, as this friend has said, this close associate says, yeah, that's actually God. He's, he's and as we'll see in a couple weeks in verse 14... This word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. Right? So what does this mean for us? Great, God is triune. Great, God is, he showed up, is who he is and what he's like. But what does that mean for us? What does it mean that God, the word became flesh? What does it mean that the word was with God and the word was God in the beginning? What does that mean for us? There's, one of the implications I think is really, really important is that we are created in the image of a relational God. There's never been a moment in eternity past before Jesus came to the earth where the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were not one. Distinct, with and like, but not. So... So if we're creating the image of a relational God, that means we are relational beings, which means that if you and I are not in relationship with other people on a deep level that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have, we are not living flourishing human lives. This is an attack against the individualism of our day. I can handle it myself, 
No, actually. The Father, Son, and the Spirit, eternity past, were one. You can't be one in and of yourself. We need one another. We're created by that and for that. Secondly, we have a faithful high priest who understands. He understands. He gets it. Jesus is uniquely acquainted with every temptation and every struggle of our world. We have a saying going around in our house right now about one of our child that just simply says, you don't get it. So no other parent has said that yet or heard that yet, right? You don't get it. You don't know what it's like. I'm like, actually, I do. Maybe not the uniqueness of how you are experiencing it. But when we can see scripture saying that Jesus was tempted in every way that we were, yet without sin, he can look at the temptations of our life. He can look at the pain and suffering in our life. And he can honestly look us in the eyes and say, yeah, I get it. I know what that's like. I felt that. And you know what? I've actually felt it even deeper than you've ever felt it. Not as a competition, but for the sake of, I'm here. I know. You don't have to run away. Like, I'm right here with you. God himself is here. And lastly, we can know our God because our God actually showed up. Advent is about waiting. We, when we think about Advent, we, we go back, and as Justin said, we go back in history and we look back at them waiting for their uh, Messiah to show up, waiting for their Savior to come. We now not only do that in Advent, but we are in the middle of the already and the not yet. We don't just look back at Jesus' first coming. We longingly wait for Jesus to return again. And so when God shows up, when, when we are waiting we have to remember, as Scripture says, that he shows up in the fullness of time. I often um, think about prayer and in prayer asking God, why does he not show up when I want him to show up? Right? Like, hey, God, like, you literally say, knock and the door will be open. Like, now, Right? And we, we pray, we ask, we long for things, whether it's per, things intent in our lives, whether it's what's wrong with the world. When we see that Jesus as the word, it reminds us that his timing is always right. He came at the fullness of time, at the, just the right time. And as our faithful high priest, he knows, he understands but when we're wrestling with God, where are you in this? God, I've been asking for this for so long in my life. Why have you not? Or whatever it may be that you are waiting on for God to show up. When we look at the beginning was the word, we know that he shows up when he's, when he's designed it to show up. So as we wait, we wait on the Lord. 
We know that he will do it at his right time, in his right way. Does that mean we stop asking? Absolutely not. We keep on asking. Because ultimately, as we look at the Advent, um, the first one of candle, the first um, candle of hope, at the end of the day, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Hope is now a person. Hope isn't changing our circumstances. Hope isn't getting what we want. Hope isn't longing for. It's not something or someone else. As we look at the hope candle, we recognize that hope is ultimately Jesus himself. He is our hope. Him returning again. Us waiting, longing for him to make all things new, to fix everything, to show up in our lives. Hope is a person. So John had this to say. He says, this is my friend. This is whom I followed. This friend of mine is God himself. So who do you say Jesus is? If he's just a teacher, I want you to listen to what Lecrae has to say. He says, Jesus is a phenomenal teacher, but his teachings will be too much for you until he becomes your savior. Our understanding of who the nature of God changes how we live our lives. It changes how we worship. If we ever think that we've exhausted all that we have to understand about God, if we ever think like, oh, I've got this all figured out, if we ever stop to pursue him and his pursuit of us, it's because we've forgotten the magnificence of what our God is like. It's mind-bending. It's, we try to communicate it and comprehend it, but it's so, he's so magnificent that, that we worship and we will worship and we will praise him and we will follow him and learn about him for eternity. The, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God.